0: Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. And this is Series 5, Session 5. Welcome back. Uh, this session's titled Common Concerns About COVID-19 Vaccination, Part 1, Immunosuppression. And uh, as we continue to race to vaccinate our community, primary care faced dual pressures of managing increasing demand and responding to increasing hesitancy. AZ safety concerns remain one of the front page and front of news pay, front of mind with terrible news of a second death likely linked to AstraZeneca vaccine. So this morning, we'll stay with the question, how can we best build our patient confidence in accessing available AZ vaccination at this time? Last week, we discussed responding to vaccine-associated thrombosis in primary care and how to investigate and refer appropriately in our region. This morning, we'll be exploring common questions arising from a different group of patients, those with autoimmune rheumatological conditions and those on immunosuppression medications. What advice can we in primary care provide and when is specialist input warranted? And with the Pfizer in primary care EOI announcements made yesterday, we'll also be considering our role either in provision of Pfizer or in supporting our GP colleagues with managing patient expectations and demand at this time. I'm going to head straight into uh, just outlining what's going to happen this morning. So Kate Graham with us again, she'll be providing a health pathways update. Um, we are joined by Associate Professor Rose Eldridge. Um, thank you for um, coming along to uh, give us an update about what's happening at the Grampians' public health unit. Uh, Dr. Tom Saushin um, is a new face to echo, um, but has been working with the Bellarine Respiratory Clinic, Epic Clinic, and is going to update us on what's been happening. They, they're they one of the GPRCs that were pilot for Pfizer. So they've been delivering Pfizer now for a few weeks. So we're really keen to hear a little bit about that. Some of those practical considerations um, and things uh, that have been happening with that and some of the th- You know, some of those issues that have been popping up their head, so that any of you who are going to be uh, entering into Pfizer provision might have some um, advanced planning. Um, and we welcome Dr Gemma Strickland, rheumatologist from Barwon Rheumatology Service, who will be presenting to us um, some common things that are coming up for her and for fellow rheumatology colleagues, um, outlining some of the guidance, and uh, And we'll put some cl- uh, clinical vignettes, thanks to um, Penny um, Scott for providing some clinical vignettes. And we're joined by Dr Callum Maggs as part of our expert panel, so thanks for joining us, um, Callum. He's the infectious diseases physician and clinical lead of the Barwon Sick Clinic 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 and at the end we'll um, give plenty of time to Linda to provide us with an update as to some of those um, vulnerable groups and groups that need that little bit of extra support in um, ensuring vaccine access at this time and she'll be letting us know what's happening there and also any potential role we might play in primary care. So it's a packed schedule, we'll get underway. Um, I'm going to hand over to you Kate Graham, thanks for providing us with an update. Good morning. Um, it's an interesting day today with
1: Melbourne um, being under reduced restrictions, um, but having ongoing community transmission. Um, we've got the situation in residential, a residential apartment building in South Melbourne, which is quite interesting in terms of how that infection is um, being transmitted between residents there. So we'll wait to hear more about that. Um, and we've also got the situation now where we have a vaccinated healthcare worker. Um, working in a hospital setting who has contracted the infection from a vaccinated patient who was one of the original aged care patients. Um, So that's another reminder that even though we are sort of progressing with this vaccination um, program, that it doesn't mean that we, um, as vaccinated individuals, can then um, reduce the restrictions on ourselves in terms of infection risk to others. Um, And so from a health pathways perspective, we've got a new pathway that's up and live, and that's about management of respiratory presentations in primary care. So looking at sort of respiratory presentations when you're in a low risk COVID environment and how you can manage them um, in a proper sort of PPE safe setting, um, but in a way that's actually manageable in a clinic environment or if you're not able to manage that in a clinic environment, how you can actually streamline those patients or direct them to correct care. We've got a pathway coming up um, that's being developed and should be available hopefully within the next week. It's being developed by um, one of the Melbourne Health Pathways team members in collaboration with ATAGI, and it's related to the thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, and it's about management in the primary care setting so that's quite exciting to have um, sort of on our radar as well. In other news, we've now got an MBS item number um, that is available for home visits, residential aged care visits, and disability care visits. And it's a flagfall item number. Um, so similar to our aged care flagfall item number, it's only available for the first patient that you see in those settings. Um, and it is for the vaccine suitability assessments. Um, And then we've also got um, the reduction of the TGA restrictions on advertising so that as healthcare professionals, we're now able to develop our own materials in practice as long as it aligns with TGA guidance. We're also able to provide incentives for vaccination as long as it doesn't involve alcohol, um, money or um, tobacco. So that makes sense. Um, There is a health alert out um, that was put out by Brett Sutton this week as well, um, just about testing for other respiratory viruses. And this is really important because we're not actually seeing a lot of influenza in the community. And that's really important in terms of being able to shape our influenza vaccination programs um, and be able to shape our influenza vaccines. Um, And so we're not actually certain as a community if that is because most of our influenza is imp- imported and we're actually seeing it sort of die out in quarantine because it has a much shorter incubation period than COVID, or if it's because we're not picking it up because we're just doing pure COVID testing. So we are encouraged for anyone doing testing to add a respiratory virus panel to all COVID tests. So that's about all from
0: me for this week, Um, but I'll be around on the line. I may have my video off as I wrangle small humans. No, thank you so much, Kate. All right, over to you, Rosemary, for a quick Grampians update. Okay, thanks very much,
2: Bianca, and good morning, everybody. I'm calling from Wairon Country this morning, and I'm so pleased to be invited back again. It's been a while, and thanks for having us, Bianca. Um, So I'd like to talk about Grampians Public Health Unit, our two most... um, pressing uh, matters that we're uh, managing at the moment. The first is coordinating the vaccination program pub- in the public sector across the Grampians region. And the second is our case control and outbreak management functions, supporting the state's response to the recent um, cases. So first of all, as of last night, across the publicly delivered sites in the Grampians region, we delivered 38,000, more than 38,000 vaccinations. Um, I can go into more detail, of course, but I, in the fullness of time, I won't. Obviously, both AstraZeneca and Pfizer, we have a community vaccination centre in most of our population centres across the Grampians. Um, in February, um, and we use three different models, um, a, fixed, a fixed centre, a pop-up centre or an in-reach outreach model. And that's been particularly pertinent. In February, we started talking about how to get vaccine to people who may not either have a GP or may not present to a community vaccination centre for reasons of say cultural linguistic linguistic diversity, disability, illness, or some other isolation, or for other reasons they may be unable to leave their home. And we've done this, uh, especially locally, but then have then rolled this out with partners such as the Primary Health Network, the Ballarat Community Health Centre and others, um, the Ballarat Multicultural Resource Centre, BADAC, the usual group you would hope to come together to consider this. And so to my knowledge, um, we early and have completed uh, vaccination in the vast or have at least started vaccination in the vast majority of disability residents in residential homes. We commenced that work in March and we didn't wait. We took the view that both um, people in disability residential settings or in high risk settings or indeed in the private aged care sector were just as much a part of our community as anyone else. And... We also took the view that they were not only at risk themselves, but for whatever reason, should there be an outbreak, would be a risk to the other people in our community. So we just included them in our rollout, and of course that was welcomed. So we'd worked; we've been working for months with our local disability coordinators, for example, and we're very proud of that. We know that there was a lot of press given about how only a few hundred had been vaccinated across Australia. We knew they had included, hadn't included our numbers, and we knew that our residents were as safe, or getting to be as safe as they could be. So, moving on to case control and outbreak management, um, we have staff trained and on duty, as you'd imagine, who are working to be ready to respond to any sorts of outbreak to contain contain COVID. And indeed, we've been doing that for the last four weeks, um, where Grampians Public Health Unit in particular has been responsible for the management of over 40 exposure sites. Now, that means that we work with the um, owner of that site, whether it be a retail, Uh, an employer situation or any kind of site, that means that they have to be um, looking at um, sending managing their staff, closing their site, cleaning it, potentially reopening. Uh, And we also work, of course, with any of the exposed people at that site, whether they be employees or visitors. And that means stratifying according to the site risk with respect to the length of exposure into primary close contacts and working with any primary close contacts who uh, then need to uh, quarantine, get a test at either end of that quarantine. Sometimes there have been too many for us to manage. So that's gone into a shared pool, if you like, across the state about how we manage those. As you've all heard on the news, we've managed up to uh, across this um, four-week period, fifteen or 16,000 primary close contacts or secondary close contacts. Then there are the casual contacts who we, um, because of the nature of the risk associated with the site, who need to isolate, get a test, until they've returned a negative test. All of those negative tests then are um, known. And so then those people are supported also with questions and support they may need. Um, As Kate said, we've had a recent uh, increase and, and transmission at the South Bank site. And indeed we're managing, I think it's now, about 10 of the exposure sites with respect to South Bank. And, um, and that will go on for at least the next two weeks because some of those sites are tier one sites, which means that people who have been exposed there need to uh, quarantine, have a test immediately, and then get a test on day 13 of their quarantine period. The secret to that is to be methodical, to be careful, to have attention to detail, and most importantly, to affect any handover. So where it comes to our attention, for example, in conversations with people that we're looking, that we're, monitoring or checking in with, that they need referral for clinical care or indeed referral for welfare or care needs, then we have whole, whole processes for doing that, which of course you would all know. The third thing I'd like to say is that many of you know Dr. Karen Owens, and I just wanted to formally say that Dr. Karen Owens has joined the Grampians Public Health Unit Halftime as a staff specialist, and of course her expertise as a very experienced primary care practitioner, GP, will add enormously to the um, capacity we have here at the Public Health Unit for engagement for public health partnerships, which are really the foundation of how we in public health do our business. So thanks. Back to you, Bianca.
0: Oh, thank you. That's so exciting to hear, Rosemary, and and uh, I really hope. Um, I'm sorry that we've only had a small amount of time, but it's really interesting to hear about your work, and I love hearing about that anticipating, um, and planning for that disability and residential aged care sector because it really did worry us. And um, great, and we really I I understand. Uh, you know, I would give a debt of credit to PHUs for picking up some of that work. Um, let's get you back for a more substantial piece because I think we really want to focus on um, those social social cultural physical structural barriers around vaccine access probably yeah. to kick off next our next series um so we'll pick up some of these conversations and maybe really spend some time throwing up some clinical cases so guys if you've got clinical cases of people that you fear face access barriers echo now this is how it's going to work you'll send those cases in i'll build a session from the ground up we'll invite rosemary to be an expert for those discussions so uh, if you send me cases we'll keep echo going um, that's how it'll work. So uh, I look forward to those conversations in our next series. Thanks, Rose Marie. All right, over to you, Tom. Um, a quick update from Epic. Keen to hear how Pfizer's going. So my name's Tom Cisj
3: I've just relocated with my family from East Gippsland where I was also involved in the respiratory clinic. Uh, I'm a fellow GP working at the Bellarine Respiratory Clinic as well as at Epic Health in Ocean Grove and I also do one day per week in urgent care. I'm subbing in for Beth and Knapp today at short notice. So I apologize that I don't have any slides. And if I can't answer any questions, I'm happy to follow up by email. Um, So currently at the Bellarine Respiratory Clinic in Ocean Grove is running the vaccine clinic six days per week with a seventh day being added week to week based on vaccine supply and patient demand. Uh, We're doing AstraZeneca vaccines Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays and Pfizer vaccines Mondays, Wednesdays and some Sundays. We have uh, three or four nurses per session we're giving about 120 to 160 vaccines per session again, depending on supply and demand. Uh, Including check in vaccination and observation, most people are in and out within 30 minutes Uh, appointments can be made through our website or by ringing our offices, you can just Google Bellarine respiratory clinic, Um, but I believe the contact details is the same as, as for the respiratory assessment clinic. Um, as per current guidelines, we're giving AstraZeneca uh, to the over 50s and under 50s who have had their first dose of um, the A-Z vaccine prior to changes in the guidelines, so long as they have not had any major complications. Second doses are being given at 12 weeks. This is the first week where we've been giving second doses to people who've received their first dose with us. If they've not received their first dose with us, then the patients need to bring proof of timing of the first dose. Um, we've been getting some people... Book in for second doses early, some appropriately and some less appropriately. The second AZ dose can be given safely after four weeks as everybody knows, but should be postponed to 12 weeks whenever possible for optimized immunity. Uh, Times when early vaccination might be appropriate in the current environment are if the patient is traveling overseas to somewhere where they can't get the AZ vaccine or where COVID-19 is more uh, prevalent. If this is the case, the second dose should be given as close to the 12 weeks as possible or practical. Uh, When patients are presenting with less appropriate reasoning, um, they're typically being rebooked for dates that are more in line with the schedule from the guidelines. If you have had any discussion with the patient and decide that there is some reason that they should have their second dose early, please provide a letter of support with explanation. This makes things much smoother for the patient and gets them in and out much faster. Um, For others, please reassure patients that there's plenty of supply and appointments will open up uh, from one week before their 12-week date. And if they're having the easy jab, they should wait the full 12 weeks whenever possible. So the Pfizer vaccine is also now being given uh, to the 40 and 49 year olds and to those 16 to 40 who qualify with major medical conditions or who are classified as essential workers. And the second dose is obviously at three weeks. Um, there've been many over 50s trying to get Pfizer vaccines. Uh, it's important to highlight to them the reasoning behind the Pfizer vaccine being reserved for the younger cohort is that the AZ vaccine is more likely albeit still very rare to lead to the clotting uh, complications in younger people. So the Pfizer vaccine must be reserved for the younger cohort. The AZ vaccine provides a very high efficacy in preventing severe illness and death and the risk of getting uh, one of these rare clots or one of these clots is very rare. The expert advice is that in the current environment the benefits outweigh the risks for over 50 year olds, it's important for people to get vaccinated in a timely fashion and not to be waiting for rules changing um, with respect to access to certain vaccines for certain ages that may or may not happen down the line.
0: Thanks, Tom. So I guess what we're keen, also really keen to hear, is practically yeah. how it's different, the Pfizer clinic versus the AZ. So for those GPs on the line who are thinking about uh, accepting an EOI or um, I know actually Tim Denton's here. I'm not sure if they've started Pfizer. How does the clinic look different? Um, and, and you know, how, how did you manage? I imagine you're getting a lot of demand. Uh, you know, how, have you had to put anything in place around some of those demanding patients wanting to Pfizer sure. when they're not eligible?
3: yeah so we've got wait lists um there is a lot of demand um the practicality of running the two vaccines at the same time just it, it's not it doesn't work sort of streamlined enough so you have to separate them by day as well um having everything drawn up in advance is also very helpful um with respect to the pfizer days i still haven't worked a pfizer day so 100 percent i'm not a I can't tell you exactly how it's working, um, but it seems to be working well. Um, uh, I guess one of the things is also just being able to use some of the um, uh, flow charts that are provided by the VIXIS website, just as, as tools to help explain to patients who's getting what vaccine and uh, what vaccine is uh, safe for who. Um, it's very, very helpful tool. Um, With respect to um, uh, just sort of reasoning with patients who are sort of angry and and confused about which vaccine they should be having.
0: And if you needed to put on additional staff to manage those patients, or to you having someone out in advance, I'm sorry, it's hard if you've not been one of the clinics. Yeah, as,
3: as far as I know, no. But what it does do is it draws the doctor. So there's a there's a doctor supervising the nurses giving the vaccines. The doctor's there to answer a whole bunch of questions. Whenever you've got the patients outside that don't qualify for the vaccine, usually the doctor has to step outside to have that conversation with the patient. Um, that you know that it just disturbs flow. And if you, as soon as you get backup when you're trying to get 160 people through a, a vaccination session, um, you get backup at admin, you get backup um, in your waiting room because essentially you're only allowed to have so many people in the waiting room. So it's it's really. Uh, the biggest thing is, is is sort of managing patient flow. Mm-hmm. And is
0: there any way you can be alerted to those patients coming? I mean, are people sending through those? Uh, are you getting referrals for for Pfizer, or are they all going through to Vixis? Um, in the in the over fifties.
3: So I still haven't seen a single referral back from Vixis. I mean, the, the the amount of people who are over fifty that qualify for a Pfizer vaccine would be very very small. Yeah. It's a, um, a very, very uh, small group of um, very rare clotting disorders that yeah. basically... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no,
0: yeah we're aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks. We talk, yeah. We, yeah, we talk about it. All right, look, thank you so much. I know that you need to get off to work. So thank you for making that um, exception and coming in and letting us know how um, that that clinic's going. And we look forward to hearing a bit more as time goes on. Um, perhaps you come and join us again. Yeah, no worries. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Gemma, over to you. Thank you for providing us with a presentation this morning on um, some of those uh, kind of tricky questions that might come up. Um, we, we This came out of, uh, I guess, a conversation we had at the end of last week's meeting where um, one of our colleagues said that they'd had a patient who had been turned away at the Ford factory because they were on an immunosuppressant and they were told to go and see their specialist prior to, to vaccination. And this GP wondered, you know, I wonder what that might have been about? What might be some of those valid reasons as to why someone might delay or time their medication alongside the vaccine? And is this necessary to refer to a specialist or could GPs support uh, these patients? And when would it be important to see a specialist? So thank you for answering these questions today.
4: No problem. Thanks, Bianca. Thanks so much for asking me to um, speak. And, yeah, I'm so impressed um, dialling into this meeting. What a wonderful um, initiative. Um, You know, great updates, you know, as a rheumatologist. um, My main update is when I drive to work, I listen to (laughs) CoronaCast. But, yeah, I'm really happy to just discuss briefly um, some issues around COVID-19 and rheumatology. Um, So, first of all, what do we know so far about patients with autoimmune rheumatic disease who have contracted COVID-19? So, there's actually a really clever rheumatologist, young rheumatologist, Philip Robinson, um, up in Brisbane, who um, is an avid um, Twitter sort of rheumatologist, and he's often in communication with um, prominent rheumatologists around the world. and. They often say that this COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance registry started with a tweet. So he tweeted someone else over in the US and said, hey, what do you think about setting up this worldwide registry so that rheumatologists worldwide can put in data about any of their patients that have been diagnosed with COVID-19 and impressively i think they have now they've combined with the EULAR registry which is a european registry and i think there's about 15,000 patients now that have been um you know entered by their rheumatologists. the details regarding their diagnosis with covid 19 what immunosuppression they're on uh what their diagnosis was and and their outcomes so we do have a lot of really useful data now um and thankfully you know that data came through quite early last year so we were able to give our patients um, quite a lot of reassurance when it was looking as though, thankfully, as a general rule, patients weren't doing a lot worse than the general population. Um, but interestingly, I had a quick look at the registry earlier this week, just to see how many um, have been registered in Australia. It's actually only 34 rheumatology patients um, in Australia itself. So I don't know, you know, obviously it is a voluntary registry. It relies on that patient's rheumatologist um, entering in data. Um, Yeah, there's only 34 in Australia so far. But importantly, the message to our patients is that most people with autoimmune rheumatic disease do recover from COVID-19. you know there were obviously reported deaths amongst those 15,000 patients that were registered, but the factors associated with COVID 19 related deaths um, are very similar to the general population. So, all of those risk factors, all of you know older age, male sex, uh, history, of comorbidity of cardiovascular disease, or chronic lung disease. But the rheumatological specific risk factors are so, those patients who don't have good control of disease. So, we really emphasized early on in the piece to our patients to not go off their, their regular medications because you know certainly we had a lot of questions early on saying, should I reduce my medications? I'm really worried about getting this infection. But really what we emphasised is, is to not discontinue medications because if they end up in a scenario with higher disease activity or indeed on more steroid, um, they certainly have a, a, a worse risk really of death or, or more severe COVID infection. Medication related risk factors. So time and time again, we know that prednisolone is really the worst. So steroids at a dose of more than 10 milligrams daily is definitely a risk factor for more severe COVID-19. Unfortunately, rituximab, um, so that's obviously our six-monthly B-cell inhibitor therapy. We we mainly use it for rheumatoid arthritis, but there has been association particularly with rituximab. um, And interestingly, sulfasalazine, so that was a really unexpected finding because we really consider sulfasalazine to not be very immunosuppressive at all. I guess we probably you know, don't use it um, as often as we use say methotrexate and laflunamide nowadays in our inflammatory arthritis patients. But interestingly in the worldwide inflammatory bowel disease registry, sulfasalazine also came up as another, as a risk factor for um, worse COVID infection. And some other immunosuppressants were also mentioned like um, perhaps mycophenolate cyclosporin, which we don't perhaps use as often. Um, so just moving on to the next slide. So, what do we know about patients with autoimmune rheumatic disease who have contracted COVID? Thankfully, methotrexate and the TNF inhibitors were not shown to have um, a negative impact. So that was really reassuring. And um, indeed, the you know they have trialed um, treatment, as I mentioned further on here, with various anti-TNFS in patients who are really sick with COVID, so severe infection. Um, and it thought you know, there was actually some data that some patients on anti-TNFs were in, in some ways slightly protected from more severe infection. And we think that's probably related to the cytokine storm that occurs when people are really sick with COVID um, in that, um, you know, the, the TNF inhibitors may dampen down that, that cytokine storm. Obviously, early on in the piece, people like Donald Trump were saying, get on the hydroxychloroquine, it will save you from COVID, but obviously we all know that that initial trial from France um, suggesting that hydroxychloroquine might be protective was um, uh, looked at further in further detail, and there's been some further trials suggesting that hydroxychloroquine, unfortunately, isn't protective, but we all know there's now a streamlined authority on hydroxychloroquine because of that. Um, We do know that even though high doses of steroids increase people's risk of more severe COVID, we all know that dexamethasone has been used successfully in patients with more severe COVID. Um, Tocilizumab, so our interleukin-6 inhibitor that we use in patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, has been shown to be successful in some patients with severe covid And interestingly, baricitinib, which is one of the JAK inhibitors that we use for rheumatoid, um, has also been shown to be effective um, in some trials for severe COVID. Um, So just moving on to the next slide. So moving on to vaccination with um, Bianca's question regarding our patients. So um, as Thomas would know, well, certainly when I presented for my first AstraZeneca vaccination, I was asked, did I have... um, I think, uh, a suppressed immune system or did I have an autoimmune disease? Obviously, that is one of the questions on the questionnaire. But certainly, the advice and the official advice from the Australian Rheumatology Association is all patients with autoimmune rheumatic disease should have the COVID-19 vaccination and there's no uh, contraindication to that. But there are some important caveats with regard to just timing of um, of medications and things like that. And so, um, you know, we haven't, advise that our patients require a letter to confirm that they um, you know, are safe to have the vaccination. The only situation where I've provided patients with a letter or sometimes I've just printed out the front page from their electronic record confirming their diagnosis and medications was um, when the phase B 1B rollout occurred and my patients that were not in the appropriate age group. So at that time, I think it was only over 70s or over 60s. So my patients that were below that age but had um, they were, you suppressed. I just, if they have, if they were there for an appointment, I just gave them something that they could show. Um, I don't know if they were required to actually show that when they had their vaccination, though. Um, so the other question we've been asked a bit by patients is, you know, will the vaccine flare my my rheumatic disease? So they have looked at this with a few small studies, a few that were reported at the recent um, online European conference. So they've suggested a few small studies showed that there was no increase in flare of autoimmune rheumatic disease, but there was one study that showed that 5% of patients had a flare. So um, one rheumatologist that was sort of summarising this talk from ULR said, well, 95% of people had no problems. So she was sort of happy with that. But when they dug down deeper to look at what was considered to be a flare, it was said, you know, very nonspecific, 2.5% had arthritis, well, you know, hard to know whether that was just their arthritis anyway. 2.1% had arthralgias and 0.8% of cutaneous flares. So certainly not severe flares um, of concern. So we've reassured our patients in that regard who had concerns. Um, And the next slide. So I guess this is a really important one. So whenever, um, since the vaccine's been available, we've been talking to our patients about what to do. Do they need to withhold any of their medications? And The advice that we got from the Australian Rheumatology Association um, early on in the piece was that um, we shouldn't, or there was no need, apart from rituximab, was that there was no need to withhold any of their medications. But there has been some recent advice suggesting that on a case by case basis, patients on methotrexate could consider withholding one to two doses, so one to two weeks off methotrexate after each of their COVID vaccinations. And that's based on um, some data suggesting a reduced antibody response um, in patients on methotrexate. There's there's been a study regarding the influenza vaccination as well, saying that methotrexate, if if you're on methotrexate, that you won't have quite as good antibody response to the influenza vaccination as well. So um, they did a study where they withheld methotrexate for two weeks after the influenza vaccination and patients did have a better Antibody response, so that's been extrapolated to suggest that perhaps with the COVID vaccine as well, that you might want to do that. The only problem is in a younger patient if they've had the Pfizer vaccine, um, obviously if they're withholding methotrexate for two weeks after each dose, they end up only having kind of one dose of methotrexate between the two vaccines. So they some of those patients may end up being kind of off methotrexate for a month, which is not always ideal. So for some of those ones having Pfizer, I've said. just perhaps consider one, you know, skipping one week off methotrexate. Um, some of my patients that I've seen in the last couple of weeks have, you know on methotrexate have already had their first dose, didn't know about withholding methotrexate, so I've just said after your second dose, um, if they've got stable arthritis, just to withhold for, for two weeks. And then the really important one to know about, and this is really, you know, the only one that we've specifically contacted patients about. So our patients on rituximab, which, as I say, mostly rheumatoid patients, a couple of people with um, more unusual conditions like vasculitis on rituximab as well. But the key thing is that rituximab significantly um suppresses um, responses to vaccination. So um, we know that um, I looked at a study recently and they said the antibody response compared to the general population, the antibody levels were reduced by 46-fold. So the key thing is delaying the COVID vaccine for as long as possible after rituximab or Delay, you know, people early this year that weren't or might have been due for, say, um, rituximab just as the vaccine was coming out, trying to get them vaccinated, delaying their rituximab a little bit. Um, So, but our patients that have had rituximab already, we're saying, look, at least three months after a dose of rituximab, um, and then after the second vaccine dose. um, restarting rituximab two weeks after after that second dose so definitely with the astrazeneca so this week i had a patient who i think was say 65 Um, she had her she was due for her rituximab um and i don't think the vaccine was quite available to her at that time earlier in the year so she went ahead and had her rituximab but then she'll only qualify for astrazeneca so i've suggested she wait three months after that that rituximab infusion to have her first dose of AstraZeneca but then obviously she's got to wait another three months before her second vaccine and then another two weeks before she can have rituximab again so it has it is probably yeah, they're the most challenging group for us just to try and work out the best timing for them
0: so that concludes the panel presentation for this session we'll bring you any other snippets that we can but come along and join the discussion next week all right Linda over to you a, a PHN update Thanks, Bianca. Is my volume all right today? Perfect. Ah, fantastic.
5: Um, Gemma, can you pop the slides up? Thanks. So from a general practice perspective, the the key issues have been just upping uh, vaccine allocation to the participating practices. So... If you are one of those practices, if you are considered a low to medium, there's um, opportunity to order up to 400 doses um, or 600 if you're a high allocation practice. And there's also been ad hoc allocations. And I was in a meeting the other day, um, and Mokesh Haikawal was saying that despite the um, increased allocations, it's actually put it does put a burden on general practice because it is about. Um, it's, it's, it's extra workload and we're really aware of um, just the extra efforts that general practice are having to do in this space. So just wanted to acknowledge that. And um, I think the ad hoc nature of some of these announcements does make it a little bit difficult for general practice to, to keep managing the changes. Um, we've had a couple of... Um, expressions of interest out. So we had one just to bring on some new practices in areas which had limited access to COVID-19 vaccines. So we've had 26 practices across the West Vic PHN region, um, 13 kicking off next Monday and another um, 13 coming on board on the 28th of June with an allocation of 150 AstraZeneca a week. So that adds capacity in the region. And we've also had a really quick turnaround. Well, actually it's it's an open EOI, but it had a quick turnaround if practices wanted to have access to Pfizer in July. So we've had that closed last Thursday and we've notified the first 13 practices to come on who are coming on board from the 5th of July. And um, I think in in the Grampians region, we've got six practices. Who will be involved in that first rollout of the Astra of, of Pfizer? So that's interesting. We had 48 applications, and if you are interested in this, it's an open-ended EOI. Um, the advice from the Commonwealth is, if you want to participate in this, in having Pfizer, you can um, basically let us know. We let the Commonwealth know, and um, they expect anybody who wants to participate to have access by October. So that's Pfizer. And next slide, please. Oh, Linda, Jim. before yeah. you
0: move on, can I just ask, when will yeah. um when will we find out which GP clinics will be providing the Pfizer? Um
5: we'll have them up on our on our website. We've got a list of the current practices administering AstraZeneca, so we'll add the Pfizer ones in as well. Great. So that's thanks. just on our COVID 19 vaccination page. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um and in regards to uh, what's happening in the private RACF space, as I mentioned last week, we've Reached out to all the private racs in regards to have they got residents who either missed their second dose because they're unwell or in hospital or didn't consent at the time or they've got new residents and again it's a real I guess it's a coordination approach and as um, as Rosemary said earlier it's a it's a really big collaborative effort to make sure that um, residents and staff have access to a vaccine so. Um, An extra player came into the field yesterday just for the Greater Melbourne and Geelong region. TLC have got a Commonwealth um, contract to go into private recs. So that adds capacity in that region, but we've also got um, a really good working relationship with both of the PHUs um, to do some outreach for residents who are in need of vaccinations and also um, the Bellarine Respiratory Clinic because they've got Pfizer. They've also been doing some work down in the Geelong <clears throat> and uh, greater Geelong area as well. So we've got some options there and even yesterday, uh, a private rack right up there in Um, um the Grampians Public Health Unit will be able to support that one resident who's in need of a vaccination. So again, it's this, um, so yeah, again, a, a collaborative approach, which has been really, really good to see. Um, in uh, Kate mentioned this also, that there's a new MBS flagfall item to to do that in reach, which supports, provides some support, which is good. Um, and just for noting, it is, um, a formal requirement now for uh, aged care providers to report um, on the, the the numbers of their staff who are vaccinated staff um, and residents. So it's mandatory. However, it's not mandatory to disclose, and so it's voluntary for workers to do that. So again, that's just um, just some extra information that's been collected. In general, similar situation across disability. We've um, just again a collaborative effort working with the PHUs um, and and GPs to provide inreach, and I think. For us, um, we've, we've managed to get a solution for all of the over 50 sites that we had on our list so that our residents in supported disability can access a vaccine. So that's good as well. Um, not to say that we haven't missed people or um, that we haven't had the information. So again, if you've got patients that fit into that criteria, just give us an email via our communications email and just, I think subject line vaccine access is probably the best and we can work out a solution, whether it's in aged care or disability. So that's pretty much what's been happening. There's always something new.
0: Thanks. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. Um, uh, can I ask? You know, the thing that's been interesting is thinking about this as a Commonwealth state or Commonwealth-led, but Commonwealth state rollout. How are you going now from a PHM perspective uh, with service mapping? Are you able to get some visibility of of where there's need in our area?
5: Um, that definitely is part of the second EOI. We could, we could see where there were gaps and that's why those particular practices were brought, up, were brought on board, particularly in the Wimmera and around um, Hamilton and Portland around there. So, um, yeah, so we have done some mapping. What we don't have at the moment, we haven't got access to the number of doses that have been administered, so we're just waiting on that data. And in regards to doses allocated, it's so flexible at the minute It's it's quite difficult to, to know what's We know the baseline, but we don't know who's ordering above that. So,
0: okay. So still, so so there's increased uh, appetite for data and and getting data to you. Yeah, definitely. And we in the Commonwealth know that,
5: and we we'll just we we expect it soon. Yeah. Good.
0: Okay. Great. Oh, thank you. All right. So subject line: um, Vaccine access. Yeah. Communications at West Vic PHN. If you know of anyone that is in need. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Um, And um, okay, great. Well, look, I think with that, um, we're probably all all good to go. Um, Do jump on and thanks, Lee Meakin, for role modelling filling in the survey. Jump on and fill in the survey. And if you put... Uh, something that you're interested in us bringing to you in that survey, we will do it. This will guide our curriculum. This is uh, Project Echo is a bottom-up curriculum, as I think you know, you all know, it's iterative. And um, I'm only interested in developing curriculum that you're interested in. So let me know what you're interested in. Um, we plan to come back. I want to hear a little bit about um, what's happening in the disability sector, and and these disability liaison officers is something that's been new and surprising, but they've been doing a fantastic job linking. people PHN phu with um vulnerable populations and populations made vulnerable so we'll learn a little bit about that and what can what else can we do uh, to help connect um that group with uh, you know primary care services through this new network so we'll be opening up that topic in our next series and um i'm keen to hear whether you want to talk a little bit more about again do we go back to modeling vaccine rollout pfizer az um, home visits in reach outreach what are we kind of thinking about in primary care, let us know and we'll think about whether to run some sessions on that. And I'm hoping we can bring you some um, experts from MCRI around hesitancy as well. So thanks to Shantini for, Shantini for um, promoting that idea. So there's some a few ideas, but um, have a good break. I um, hope you all can um, rest, take some time off, spend some time with family. Uh, if you are school holidays reliant um, and get somewhere nice. Otherwise, we'll um, take care and don't work too hard. We'll see you on the flip side uh, in mid-July. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project ECHO COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.